my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. More Than a Movie is back with season two. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like, I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Math & Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. I worked in a local TV station. I worked in the radio station. I worked in the college paper. I did everything to learn. I just jumped in the water. I didn't know a thing until take the job, get your FCC license, you're on the air. Guess what? The guy got sick. You're doing the overnight. Okay. And you learn, you jump in the water. That's my theory in life, just jumping. Hi, I'm Bob Pittman, and welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. Today, we have a real-life magician of marketing, John Sykes. Welcome, John. So good to be here in our space. I've known John since we started MTV. He was a part of the team that created MTV in 1981. 
he had already been in the record business at CBS Records, working in a real job and also as a college rep. He left MTV to go be an agent at CAA with the legendary Mike Ovitz. Two years later, you went to be the head of Champion Entertainment, Tommy Mottola's management firm, and you had Paul and Oates, John Mellencamp, Carly Simon, Taylor Dane, Mariah Carey, and others. 1990, president of Chrysalis Records, Billy Idol, Pat Benatar, Sinead O'Connor. 1992, Chrysalis merges with EMI. You become EVP of EMI Music Publishing under the legendary Marty Bandier. 1994, returns to MTV Networks to head VH1, picks up CMT Network 2, moved over to be CEO of Infinity Radio, which became CBS Radio, came back to MTV Networks to head network development, and left MTV finally in 2008. We worked together for a while in a private equity group and investments, and finally, we joined up again at iHeartMedia, and you've been running the Entertainment Enterprises Group. Is that right? Right. So that's all the time we have left in the podcast. That's it. It's over now. (laughs) It's over. Before we dig into all this and some of your stories, we want to do John Sykes in 60 seconds. Give us your immediate answer, beer or wine. Wine. Prefer Syracuse or New York City? New York City. Okay, let's see. Schenectady or Syracuse? Oh, Syracuse was the big town. Okay. Behind the music or pop-up video? Uh, Pop-up video was more clever. Vinyl or streaming? Oh, that's a tough one. I'm a streamer now. Elvis Presley or Elvis Duran? Oh, Elvis Duran. Alt rock or yacht rock? <laughs> I'm still hanging on to alt rock. East coast or west coast? Oh, boy. I'm starting to lean west. MTV or VH1? Oh, boy. You killed me on that one. The two children. I got to say, MTV will always be the mark. Radio or TV? I think now in the next phase of my life, radio. Most fun talent to manage or work with? Ryan Seacrest. Ryan Seacrest is a consummate professional. Anything you ask him to do, he makes it better. Childhood hero? Oh, Mickey Mantle. First job? Delivering newspapers. And I needed money so badly growing up, I had two paper outs. I had the morning and the afternoon. And my sister would say, nobody has two paper outs. I said, well, I got to buy a set of drums. If you want to, you can talk about Second or third job when you talk about summers in Saratoga Springs? The really first job was a summer intern at Saratoga Performing Arts Center. And if you live in a hick town like Schenectady, which I loved growing up in, the big town came to Schenectady every summer. That's when all the rich people, the racing people from Kentucky, the Vanderbilts, the Whitney's, Johnny Carson, Mick Jagger, Frank Sinatra, they all come to Saratoga for the races. And so at that time, Governor Rockefeller built an amphitheater with state money and brought in the New York City Ballet, the Philadelphia Orchestra. But to fill in the dates, they'd bring in rock bands. So the Who, Eric Clapton, bands that I grew up just staring at albums were all of a sudden coming into my town. And they needed someone to be the intern, to pick them up at the airport, run the contracts. When I would see that Eric Clapton's making $100,000 to play for 45 minutes, I've got to get in this business. I got to learn the business by driving them and asking them questions from the airport. There were no private jets. There were barely limousines. This was not a big business back in the 70s. Rock and roll was just exploding. So one day they said, you're going to pick up Frank Sinatra. And I went, I'm going to pick up Frank Sinatra. Oh, my God. They said, wash the car. So I went in the Saratoga car, the same car I picked up Eric Clapton, George Balanchine, everybody. I went to a different airport. I didn't go to Albany Airport. I went to this landing strip. And all of a sudden, this thing I'd never seen called a private plane landed. 
And off the plane comes some comedian with gold jewelry around him, the giant security guard, and then the most beautiful woman I've ever seen from Las Vegas who had like a denim jumpsuit on, unzipped <laughs> right down. And then Frank gets off the plane, walks towards the car. I said, Mr. Sinatra, I'm here to drive you to the Performing Arts Center. And then this big dude next to him called Chili Rizzo, who died mysteriously a few years later, says, nobody drives Frank but him. And all of a sudden, this guy gets off the plane with neck and veins popping out. And another car just pulls up right next to us out of nowhere. And they get in the car and he goes, you're going with me. I go, okay, he's going to kill me now. They drive off and I follow the car. And I get there. I'm walking down the hallway and Frank Sinatra sees me and goes, hey, kid, sorry. We have security. We have to do it this way. And I go, oh, I'm okay. He goes, uh, what do you do? I go, I go to college. <laughs> he goes to college. Hey, they all laughed at me. He goes, what do you want to do? I I want to get in television. He says, I'm on television. I do television. So he said, um, you look thin. They pay you here? I go, they pay me okay. He goes, when I leave, take my food. <laughs> so they boxed up the food and they left. And that was my introduction to show business. That's pretty good. A bunch of free food. <laughs> free food. Some things never change. <laughs> Here's young John Sykes. In your life there, small town, your dad was an independent businessman. What happened there that is so integral to who you are today? We all know growing up, you know, it's nature nurture. I think there's a combination. I grew up in a house of five kids, four sisters and myself, four crazy type A sisters. We had a dinner table where we debated. We debated everything. My mother was a left-wing Democrat college professor. My dad was a very kind of moderate, conservative businessman, but we did have a picture of the Pope and John Kennedy on the TV sets. We were Democrats. What I loved so much about that was that we debated every night at six o'clock. The Vietnam War was on television. Politics were flying around a family, but no one took it personally when we debated. Everybody could have a wicked argument, a wicked debate, and you better come prepared. Also, I just always wanted to do something big. I have so many ideas, but I don't want them to live and die in this town. I want to be able to amplify those. And that's why I fell in love in that small town with media, with radio and television and music, because those were platforms, springboards for an idea. And I remember watching Johnny Carson. What I liked the most is when the camera went out wide, I saw the guy holding the cue cards. I saw the guy at the desk with the glasses. I said, he must be running this. He's doing this. So he's taking this thing in the studio, and it's going everywhere. So for me, that was a little bit of the nature. I was just always born as somebody who wanted to think big. Nothing against a small town. It was always like, if it's a good idea in Schenectady, it could be a good idea in LA, Dallas, Chicago. It could be anywhere. But the great thing about a small town is it gave you the opportunity to be bored. And when you're bored, you dream. When you're sitting in Jackson, Mississippi, or Schenectady, New York, you're a Jackson boy, and you're looking up at the sky and you see an airplane fly over and you go, who's in that plane? And how could they afford to be in that plane? Are they going to Paris? And can I get in that plane? And I, I want to get in that plane. So you go to Syracuse. Why is it so many leaders in media came out of Syracuse? I mean, it's an abnormal number of people came out of Syracuse. It is a magical place. Thanks to Cy Newhouse, the older one who was a newspaper magnet, the magazines and, of course, broadcasting. He put millions and millions of dollars into a creative lab at Syracuse called the Newhouse School. The first thing they said to you when you went to that campus was, this is not a technical school. We're not going to teach you how to run the dials. This is a school about ideas. This is a school about creativity. 
So guess what? The next two years, you're going to go up the hill to the arts and science schools. You're going to take religion, philosophy, psychology, and you're going to learn about something to write about to put on radio and television. Right now, we don't need anyone to operate the cameras. That's not why you're here. You should go to the Columbia School of Broadcasting for that. And if you want to get experience, go get a job somewhere. Go write copy for a radio station. Go do layout for a newspaper. So that's what I did. I worked in a local TV station. I worked in the radio station. I worked in the college paper. I did everything to learn. I just jumped in the water. I didn't know a thing until take the job, get your FCC license, you're on the air. Guess what? The guy got sick. You're doing the overnight. Okay. And you learn, you jump in the water. That's my theory in life, just jump in. Other kids were partying on weekends, whatever. I was doing the overnight shift at the radio station. I was downtown laying out a newspaper, but that gave me the tools to call you up when you were starting MTV and say, I know how to do this. I've done it already. I've done this since I was college. Ambition. So let's talk about MTV. It's 1980. The word gets out that we're working on this new music channel. How do you hear about it? What does it mean to you? And how on earth did you really get connected to us to get on that original team? I grew up with three things in my life. Radio, television, music. That's all I cared about. When I wasn't listening to the radio station, I was watching TV or listening to music. Those things to me shaped our culture. So I'm at school, cable TV is just starting out. And I saw the cable channels were empty. And music was all over the radio. It wasn't on television. So we used to go and shoot the concerts at Syracuse. And we'd tape them and send them to new channels. And we'd play the concerts. And people were like, oh my God, I can see the band. And all I wanted to do at that point was put music on television. When I graduated, I wanted to go for a network. And I went to CBS. said, let's put music on. Let's run concerts. These three martini lunch guys in New York looked at me like it was crazy. And they said, get a job in the music division. Get a job in the record company. Because CBS is now Sony owned. So I got a job in the record business promoting radio stations. I wanted to run the radio station. I didn't want to promote them on the radio. But that's the job I had. So I would go into the record office there, and in the corner of the office, there were these videos, VHS videos that came over from Europe of bands like the Jacksons, Cheap Trick, Boston, Bruce Springsteen, but they couldn't be used in America. So these came over from the international division. They would show them at the branch meetings. I'm going like, why don't we put them in the record stores? Let's put them in the window. Let's put a TV and a VCR in the window. And I went to a guy named Les Elias who ran the loop, and I said, why don't you do the rock and roll picture show on weekends and put these videos in theaters. So then I heard from my friend, Steve Casey, who's a WLS in Chicago, that his great friend, Bob Pittman was in New York and he was going to start a video channel. And I lost my mind. It just, it's like, it still gives me goosebumps. I was like, this is what I was made to do. This is what I wanted to do. To me, it was like music belonged on television. It's a language that television was lacking with. There was CNN, there was HBO. There was, so I started calling you and I called you and I called you and I called you. And thanks to your assistant, Ann Plunkett, who I was annoying so much, she said, all right, Bob, will you please talk to this guy? And uh, we met that day with a borrowed sport jacket because <laughs> I didn't own it and some bad hair. But you and I connected that moment because we had the same vision. Music and television were the two biggest forces in pop culture. And they were about to be, you know, you look back on any successful product and it seems easy. You were there when we didn't even have approval from the board to do it. We just had some money to develop it. So give us a little color for people who think things are easy and they always go exactly the way you plan, what that early development was like. It is funny. People like, oh, my God, you're on the team that started MTV. That must have been a magical and great. I go, 
I don't know. I was working too hard. We were so in the trenches all the time. It only looks glamorous today looking back, but when you're in it, it's a slugfest. There was this idea, but to make it happen, we had no money and we all quit jobs. You were at NBC. I was at CBS. I was the promotion man of the year in Chicago. And I just said, I'm quitting. What are you crazy? You have a career and people like us, we weren't going to fail. And you know, the funny thing is as hard as we worked, I never thought we were going to fail. I got scared when you'd come in and say, you know, they're going to cut the budgets. We've got a few more months. We've got to make our numbers. That just made me say, well, we're going to have to work hard to make our numbers. I do still remember one conversation we have where I said, okay, we're going to the board and we're, we're going to pitch this for approval. And you go, what? We don't have approval? I quit my job. We don't have approval? I go, no, no, John, this was development. All the blood ran out of your face at that moment. I do remember. I had to look up, because there was no internet, I had to go in the dictionary and look up the real definition of development. I just thought we're developing something. You go, no, development means it's not going to happen yet. But you know something? I got freaked. I was like, who cares? If it doesn't work, I'll go sleep on my sister's couch and get another job. We were young. Yep. We launch MTV. We get it underway. We're trying to get some evidence that it's working, because the record companies are hemorrhaging money those years, turning a lot of red ink. They were thinking about cutting videos out of their budget, which of course would have been a disaster for us. So we said, we got to get some evidence ahead of the budget cycle. And you and Tom Freston go on the road to Tulsa, Oklahoma. Tell me what happened in Tulsa and tell me what that impact was for you. We believe this was working. We felt it, but we needed facts. We needed to convince a record business. So it was like, we need a story. Tom, John, go on the road. Don't come back to have a story. And Tulsa didn't happen until we went to Syracuse, Houston, and we went to the cable markets. So Tom and I, driving through Tulsa in a rental car, literally with a map of record stores in a dry city. This is showbiz. This is the glamour showbiz. Going into places. So you sold any police records? Sold any Duran Duran? You sold any tubes? <laughs> tubes? Nope, nope, nope. So we kept driving, driving. I still remember, I don't remember the name of the store or whatever, but it was a record store in an old house. And Tom and I drudge in and we say, you sold only this, sold only that, sold only Duran Duran. He goes, Duran Duran? I sold two boxes of Duran Duran records last week. We're, what? <laughs> you sold two boxes? You sold 50 records, 25 records in a box. Can we have your name <laughs> and can we use your phone? We called up Bob. I said, Bob. Bob, we have a story. We have a story. We have a record store that's selling music only played on MTV. And you said, great, get a name, get the information. We need an article. And so we hang up the phone. I turn to Tom. I go, Tom, we get to go home. And we took that and we wrote it as a case study. And we ran it in Billboard and the music magazines to influence the record companies so I they have, keep going. I have the, of course you do. You have everything <laughs> we ever did at MTV. You are the pack rat of MTV. <laughs> pack rat. I have that one sheet, MTV sells records. Joey Smith, and boy, that Joey Smith, wherever you are in Tulsa, Oklahoma, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. We're going to be right back after a quick break. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. 
And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. On Purpose is dedicated to helping you be happier, healthier, and more healed. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how he got comfortable with fear, navigating the changes in relationships, and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. This conversation shows a never-seen-before side to Orlando Bloom and his unique life journey. I think we all struggle sometimes to really deeply believe that we are enough, that we're valued, that we're valuable. You know, we're imprinted by our parents from the age of zero to seven, right? Mm. I'm constantly trying to go like, how do I detach from my this idea of what do, is that? Is that my baggage? I look like my baggage. I mean, I know. Okay, that's mine. Let's unpack that. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny. The warmth of Fredo and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carvin and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Math & Magic. We're here with John Sykes. So you were the guy who did the promotions. You came up with these great ideas and Fortunately or unfortunately, we're the one that also executed them. You did the Paint the House Pink promotion with John Mellencamp. You did the Lost Weekend with Van Halen. What formula were you using? It goes back to that Schenectady, New York thing of being a dreamer. Because I was the kid. I was the viewer who thought, oh, my God, if only I could dot, dot, dot. So when you said, we've got to put together some promotions. We've got to go bigger than life. We go, what are we going to do? I just said to myself, okay, what would anybody give their eye teeth to do? What would be the fantasy of all fantasies? We created dreams for people to connect with artists in ways that a kid from a small town never would. When you talk about marketing, it's not the actual event that you have to fulfill. It's the dreams you put in the heads of the consumers that sells the product. 
whether you're selling cars or whatever it is, it's the magic of how you're going to feel, the aspirational. So we created those dreams and it was kind of the greatest times of my life. And I remember just John had done a song called Pink Houses. So let's give away a house and we're going to paint the mother pink. Tell us about the first house you bought. (laughs) When you had to execute it, that means you had to go find a house. You had to go buy a house. You had to go actually get a team to paint it pink. You had to go fly people in. So we went. And you had no money. So we had to buy the cheapest (laughs) cheapest house house you could find. So Bob goes, take a cashier's check and just go buy a house. And I go, okay. So I flew in Indiana and John Mellencamp, who loved the idea, sends his ex-wife to meet me to show me around to buy some house. She's a realtor. So we go and I go, okay, I got about two hours before I get the flight back to New York. Show me four houses. First house we buy. The woman is there, just cookies for me. The kids are out front. They've cleaned it up. This was a shack. I felt so bad for her. She was a single mom. Look at this house. And I said, this is, this will do. It's a, we can paint this pink. So I wrote a check, $32,000, bought the house. Her jaw dropped. No realtor. Just handed the check and got in the car, drove back. We opened up Rolling Stone three weeks later. MTV buys house on toxic waste dump. <laughs> so, so I call you, go, Bob. I had no idea. John Mellencamp writes me a letter that I have today. Dear John, I'm sure you've read Rolling Stone by now, and I'm sure you wouldn't want to give a house on a toxic waste dump. And I'm going, oh my God, we're stuck with a house. So I had to fly back and get another house. But that's not the good story. Double the budget. Double the budget. The good story was The Lost Weekend with Van Halen. That one really, really defined MTV as a serious, dangerous rock and roll brand to consumers. There was a movie called The Lost Weekend. Ray Milland was in there and the guy loses his mind, whatever. And there was a guy who worked for us, Les Garland, who would go out. We used to say Les Garland went on a lost weekend. He would go out and have fun, whatever. And so we just said, let's do a lost weekend with a band. Who's the craziest band out there right now? Van Halen. Van Halen wouldn't do any promotion because they were worried about their image. We called them with the idea like, we're in, we're in. And by the way, we'll fulfill the contest. You don't have to do anything. Just drop off the fans with us and we'll deliver them back on Sunday. So we did that. The kid arrives and they take him at four o'clock in the afternoon right into the backstage and everything you can imagine would happen with Van Halen happened. So by the time the band goes on stage at nine o'clock at night, this guy is fried. There's been things that were not a Warner MX condoned or MTV Network's activity, but the band took that. So he's standing on stage completely out of his mind And David Lee Roth goes, we have the winner tonight of the MTV Lost Weekend. Joe Smith, you know, Joe, congratulations. They bring out a giant sheet cake. He's got his hands up in the air and the band's around him. And they take the sheet cake and they push it into his face. And the guy is stunned. And he starts twirling around, swinging punches at the band. The band freaks out. They take him off and they bring him backstage. We say to his friend, what's wrong with him? And he said, we forgot to tell you, he has a metal plate in his head. He was in an accident. He's not supposed to drink. So they had to put him in a room with a security guard all night. But that kind of made the legend of MTV. I wish we could take credit for that, but that was it. So the contest. I, I, maybe we're lucky we can't take credit for it. You know what those contests did? They creates the fantasy and the aspiration that makes someone want to be attracted to a product. So we had a great time at MTV. Things actually turned around. Instead of losing money, we were making money. And you left in 1986. Why did you leave? I get antsy. I'm a startup guy. I always love startups. I love to see if I can defy conventional wisdom. I'd like to try things people say won't work. I felt that that phase had passed and I kind of felt that there was another challenge coming for me. I really had 
the euphoria of launching something and building it. At that point in my life, I was thinking, what's the next way to merge platforms? We merged radio and television together with MTV. I thought movies, paid content, and music could be merged on another platform. So you went to work for Mike Ovitz. You didn't stay a long time. You didn't ever turn into really an agent. But what did you learn about the business from that perspective and that perch? It was a fascinating business. I knew it wasn't for me, and I knew I'd never be a good agent because agents are amazing transactional individuals. They don't waste time. They move it no matter what color, size, shape it is. They're just moving the money. And I knew I wasn't going to be a good agent when they call them clients and I call them artists. One of the guys at CA said to me, why do you keep calling them artists? They're clients. I go, what's creative artists? But they go, they're clients. We get them jobs and we turn them. And then the other day I knew I wasn't going to last there was that when the script came in for a movie I was working on, I looked and I said, this script needs work. I think if we, this isn't. So I called the producer and I said, you know, there's a guy, Sean Penn would be really great in this role. And you got to change this, change that. And two agents called me. One agent said, don't tell the writers how to write this. You're the agent. And then the second, Sean Penn's agent, because Sean Penn doesn't work for scale. And I said, well, when the Rolling Stones play New York City, they play a club to be cool. Al Pacino does American Buffalo on Broadway and was not doing The Godfather. It's image. You got to be cool. And they go, we don't care about image. So I knew it was time to leave. I had never had a problem jumping the fence. I'd be on the broadcast side. I'd be on the management side. The record company side, to me, it was all one business. So let's move it. Now you do get the call to be a label head. Chrysalis Records was really hot at the time. You're now a label head. Ten years earlier, you'd been a promo rep in Chicago. So yeah. how does that feel, and what did you learn there? I absolutely loved it. I loved the fact that I was no longer two steps off the side of the stage watching someone else. I said, well, if I'm the guy run the record company, I can choose what records come out. I can actually choose which ones are promoted, and I absolutely love that. And we went from this cool company to having three records in the top 25 in the first six months because I got very lucky we signed the right artists, but we marketed. We went out there and I didn't care. I would call, I would do whatever it took to get those records exposed. I would call radio programmers I knew from my days at MTV, before MTV, in Chicago. I'd go anywhere, whatever it took. And we had the best year in 20 years at that company because we took this great music and we marketed it. So well that they, they sold, merged they bought the company. with EMI. And I won't take you through that, but you had a spectacular career there too with Marty Bandier. And then you finally go home to MTV Networks. Tom Freston calls you up, says, come home, need you to fix VH1. What did you do? As you know, Bob, because you taught me so much of this stuff, a brand is only valuable if there's an underserved segment of the audience that needs it. Hip hop was starting to happen. Alternative music was exploding. And a lot of the traditional rock bands and R&B bands were being pushed out. And they're going like kind of off of a cliff. And I said, there's a market here. Because having run a record company, a publishing company, we were seeing these artists that used to be called middle of the road back then, but now they were actually vibrant pop bands that didn't have a place. And then I saw who are the most powerful buyers? Young adults, young college graduates, first time making money, starting families, having access to money for the first time, not just chipping away at dollars and cents in college. Here's a generation that's grown up on MTV. They have money, they're affluent, and they have nowhere to go. So I was as excited actually about VH1 as I was about MTV. I mean, MTV is iconic and it will be there forever. But the other thing about VH1 to me also was it was my own. It was something that if... Now you're a network head. You've been a label head, now you're a network head. Yeah, I always like to do that. I like to run it. 
and I knew if I fell, it would be on me. It would only be on my shoulders. It would be Sykes out at VH1 fails. They used to call it VH.1. It was the rating it would get. For those people who know ratings, ratings are from zero to whatever, and point one's zero to a hundred. <laughs> point point one, one is not a, lot. not a lot. So anyway, VH1 is the ugly stepchild at MTV Networks. We built it as a fighting brand, as a flanker brand to keep, I used to say it was nails out the back seat of a car to put flats in the tires of the cars behind us because we didn't want anybody to compete with MTV. But I said, now it quietly has 30 million homes. There's a market for this. And I looked in the room, half the people like, or asleep. I used to call that quit and staying. They had a job, but they didn't believe in the product, but they were collecting a paycheck. So I said, listen, if you don't believe in this, it's okay. We won't make a big thing. We're going to fire you, but we'll work out a package. You should leave because we need people who are going to believe in this. There's a market for this. And I believe that this is going to be a $300 million business in the next three years if we all focus on that. So people came to me and said, I don't want to do this. I, was, I didn't think they, I didn't think it would come. And they, like, I don't think you're right. I was like, okay, well, thank bye you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. They all came back three years later looking for jobs. But it was about believing in yourself, believing in your idea, hiring people around you who are better than you at executing what they did. And we put together a team at VH1 who went on to run NBC, Nintendo, Bravo. We put together an all-star yeah, you did. trip. So it made me proud. And working with Sumner Redstone, I mean, Sun Redstone, 1994, was on his game. You walked in and said, here's my plan. Here's what I want to do. And he'd just say, fine, go do it. If you don't do it, I'll fire you. I'd say, it's all I want to know. Just give me the rope. And he did. It was a great nine years. We shattered all the records there. But like all good businesses, you've got to reinvent them. Otherwise, they paid it off. You did a couple more things, but let's jump to doing good. You've really been involved with some legendary efforts that really made a difference. We started with Live Aid. Bob Geldof and Harvey Goldsmith, and, you know, we have long stories about that. But 9-11 happens in New York, and you and a couple of folks decide you're going to do a concert for New York with the Robin Hood Foundation. Tell me about it. Well, being raised by a liberal mother and a, a Democratic household, we were always wanting to give back. My mom used to teach at a prison. Like, that's what she did. She said, you know something? Whatever you do in your life, you got to give back. You give your time, you give your money, you got to do that. And that stayed with me. So when we were at MTV, we did VH1 Save the Music. Nickelodeon did the big help. Obviously, MTV did Rock the Vote. I always felt like if you're lucky enough to run one of these corporations, you got to take care of the community, whatever that might be. 9-11 happens, and we were like, we have to do something. This is our city. This is where Viacom makes its money. Every artist makes money in New York. New York under attack. So I called Jim Dolan. And we, Madison Square Garden. Jim Dolan owns Madison Square Garden. We had done some fundraisers before and we got talking about it. And we said, if we use the garden, the big room, then we got to turn the volume up. What we have to do then is throw an Irish wake. Let's figure a way we can raise a ton of money for these families that desperately need it, who lost their loved ones in this thing. And let's use the power of music and the power of these platforms. Let's create the biggest fundraiser since Live Aid and let's message out why everyone from around the world should come back to the city where they all got their start. So called you at AOL and we did what we knew how to do. You know, we skipped over today the video music awards that you and I started 1984 and reinvented award shows. So we said, let's create the biggest fundraiser since live aid. And within four and a half weeks, we put on, I think the biggest show that's ever happened. How much money was raised? Remind me. $55 million 
what we saw was the ability to use our power to create scale for the right things. So you've been through all these things in your life. You gave us a few stories today, but is there one overriding lesson you would give to an entrepreneur? Someone listening today who said, I have that ambition. I want to make something really big. What's the advice? The best advice I can give anyone starting out is it's a step-by-step process. And you may have your eye on the end of the rainbow, but arriving in the rainbow involves many steps along the way. So take an idea and master that idea. Master what you do and people will be dying to hire you to do the next thing or fund you the next thing. It really is about just taking an idea and then not letting go of it. And by the way, everything is a good idea as an opportunity until it's not. So if you have something, then work it and vet it and you'll find out if it isn't and then you have to pivot. Let's talk about today. What's going on in marketing music today? There's a changing of the guard across all entertainment right now. Everything that you and I did growing up in an analog world has now just been turned upside down. So it's either a time to get scared and run to the hills or to say, great, we can reinvent ourselves. So now I think it becomes much more sophisticated. Data plays a huge role next to gut, which is still about that creativity. Service. But there's so many ways now to get information out to people, so many ways to connect. What happened to music on TV networks? I think music on television, when we did it, was, wow, concerts. And then the British came in and made them great videos and they created an art form out of it. But even that kind of aged out. Then we had award shows where people would kind of stand up and say, good evening, good afternoon, good because we didn't have social media during the year, so we needed that. Well, social media has turned it upside down. So music is live and well. Radio was really a personalized medium that actually led the way for television, cable, and what you and I did in Change the World. So I think for us now, there are so many opportunities to market. And it really comes down to understanding the platforms you work for and just throwing out the tradition. We get stuck in our ways and I think we fail to sometimes reinvent ourselves, and that's the challenge we have to do. Okay, today. the value, a good idea, or the platform? To me, it's the idea. I think ideas find the platforms. People talk about, oh my God, broadcasts will go away. It's going to be over the top, and this will go away. And nothing goes away. It evolves, and it becomes a mix. A great idea can end up on iHeartRadio, podcasts, could be on Amazon, could be on Netflix. It will find, it could be This Is Us on NBC, a great hour-long, amazing drama. It's on broadcast television, but The Crown is on Amazon. And now you have Disgraceland on podcasts. So great ideas, I think, will find the platform of the moment. Okay, so let's send it the way we always do. It's math and magic. Who's the best mathematician you know? That person who just sees the world from analytics. Easy. My son, Jack Sykes. Okay. He's a genius. Who's your best magician? Oh, you know who makes magic happen every day, but he doesn't come off the, the magician is Lorne Michaels. Yeah, you're right. Lorne Michaels is Saturday Night Live. He's type B, very quiet, brilliant, and he makes it happen every week. And he actually has been my television mentor. We've gone on vacation for 20 years and we walk on the beach with our kids all running around. Now they're all grown up. And he tells me the history of television. And there's no one out there who understands television like Lorne Michaels. John? This has been great. Time has flown by. Thank you, Bob. Here are three things I picked up from my chat with John. One, jump in the water. Whether it was a college radio station or running an award show, John's philosophy has always been to just dive into the opportunities in front of you and figure it out. Two, John believes you should find one thing and pour all your effort into it. 
as he puts it, master what you do and people will be dying to hire you to do the next thing or find your next thing. Three, be persistent. When John gets an idea, he's tenacious about it. When he heard about MTV, he didn't stop calling my assistant until he got a call back. I'm Bob Pittman. Thanks for listening. That's it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to Math and Magic, a production of iHeartRadio. The show is hosted by Bob Pittman. Special thanks to Sue Schillinger for booking and wrangling our wonderful talent, which is no small feat. Nikki Etor for pulling research, Bill Plax and Michael Azar for their recording help, our editor Ryan Murdoch, and of course, Gail, Raul, Eric, Angel, Noel, Mango, and everyone who helped bring this show to your ears. Until next time. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie. Because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast. This week, I talked to Orlando Bloom in a rare interview where we went deep into how to get comfortable with fear and how to change the guilt and shame thought pattern. People say, what are you afraid of, right? I'm afraid of fear because it's like I want to confront anything in my life that feels challenging on those levels. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Get ready for Smart Money Happy Hour. Pull up a chair. It's the happy hour you wish your friends were having. Mix two money experts with some hot takes and a splash of nostalgia, and you get me, George Campbell. And me, Rachel Cruz, talking unfiltered about what's going on in the world, pop culture, and how to afford a life you love. We're talking money, celebrity budgets, and my budget for my two French Bulldogs. It's a lot. <laughs> You'll hear it all on Smart Money Happy Hour. Listen on the iHeart app or wherever you get your podcasts.